Hey everyone, welcome to episode 6 of season 2 of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Doctor, and it is a pleasure and a privilege to get to chat to you all again. We hit another milestone this weekend as our listener numbers passed a whopping 30,000 downloads. This is unbelievable, and as I said many times before, for two lads who'd never made a podcast before and one who'd never even listened to one, that was me, uh, it, this is a staggering result. We want to sincerely thank everyone for listening, downloading and sharing and for commenting so positively. It makes all the hours of recording and editing worthwhile. And so from the bottom of our hearts, thank you all. We realised from the feedback this week that our struggles, especially over the last week, I think, uh, are very difficult just now. The weight of lockdown three is weighing heavily on a lot of us. And the uncertainty of a lockdown exit plan, I think, has everyone a bit down. The pressure of homeschooling, school closures, midterm breaks, working from home, leaving cert, etc. is stretching everyone to the limit. So we made an executive decision to respond to this dynamic. And we felt as parents, in the absence of certainty, we could all do with a laugh. It has always been my contention that humour is a hugely undervalued dynamic when it comes to mental health. And oftentimes the darker things become, the more we tend to need it. So with that in mind, we decided to swap our listeners' questions episode next week and release my interview that I had this week. They say you should never meet your heroes, but this was not the case when I met my guest this week. Her humour, entertainment and wit lifted my mood considerably when we recorded this episode. And I hope it'll do the same for you. So as a means of needing a dose of light in the darkness, I'll leave you now to listen to this week's episode and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Anyway... Today's guest on the Asking for a Parent podcast will be well known to many of you. She's uh, formerly one third of the comedy troupe CC Cahoots and is a stalwart of the Irish stand-up scene. She hosts on a, on a number of TV shows such as The School, uh, The Body Brothers and a recent fabulous guest on RTE 2's uh, Clear History. Uh, she's also on uh, Red FM Breakfast with Ray Foley. Um, I first became aware of her comedic genius when someone sent me a clip of a comedy sketch called Cop On, which was done by her and her colleagues, which was the title of my book at the time. I found myself falling into a sinkhole of sketches. And from then on, I was hooked. This lady is one of the funniest people to watch. And it gives me great excitement now to chat to her for the first time. So yes, you've guessed it. My guest on this week's episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast is comedian Laura O'Mahony. Laura, how are you? I'm very well. Got I sound very impressive on paper. All true, all true. All so true, come yeah. here, Laura, how are you doing? We're in, to situate listeners, we are lockdown three. Mm. We're probably four weeks into it now at some stage. We've lost track of time. It's all a bit grim. There's not an awful lot of hope and optimism. There's still a huge amount of uncertainty around schools reopening. There's a great deal of stress around how are you, how has the last 11 months been for you? Uh, very interesting. Uh, well, I suppose at the very start of like lockdown one, so I had a sold out gig in the Everyman Palace in Cork on the 14th of March, right? Which, as we know, lockdown was, I think, the 12th of March. So that first week, I was so panicked that the gig would be forced to go ahead. I was like crying on the phone to my mom going, I can't, like everyone's going to come and all my audience are going to get sick. <laughs> it's going to be terrible. Um, so I suppose lockdown started with that gig being cancelled much to my relief for a number of reasons one was people wouldn't get sick two was I hadn't finished writing it yeah. uh, so but actually the first lockdown I was very good at because I am in my everyday life I would be a catastrophizer and I would be like always thinking either I was going to die someone belonging me was going to die or the world was going to end like I remember when I was getting married in 2012 somebody said the Mayans had said the world was going to end and I was frantic for the year I was like oh my god the Mayans they've wrecked me wedding so I'm actually quite good at a crisis actually a real crisis then because I'm like oh thank god it's happened I can relax this is the thing I was worried about and now it has occurred so that got me through lockdown one and two uh, but I suppose lockdown three is starting to take its toll a bit. I'd still be quite positive and hopeful and stuff, but it's just that it's so long. And when the vaccine was is there kind of dangling in front of us and you think the end is really close to realize that the end is still a bit away. You, you, I found I had to regroup a little bit and be like, OK, there's still there's still work to be done here. But in general, 
I uh, I find it easier to be in crisis than not. <laughs> and it's, it, you mentioned there that you're a catastrophizer or that you mm. tend to get. And suppose I was trying to think when you were talking there about being anxious. But then, you know, you are a stand up comic, which, yeah. you know, is probably the most anxiety provoking role that the world would ever do. And I'm sure you get this all the time, you know. Oh, I couldn't do your job. But how does that manage with, with someone who's perhaps anxious, but has that amazing ability to have the confidence or the wherewithal to hold it together when everyone is just saying, make me laugh? That's yeah, so difficult. It's interesting because I don't actually associate myself as being anxious or, or like having anxiety in, in any kind of uh, official way. I don't think I have at all, actually. I think part of my problem is this is a great problem to have is nothing hugely dramatic has ever happened to me so I I then spend a lot of time thinking oh but now now that things are going good Laura something's going to happen you're gonna you're you're gonna be plucked God is going to come along and say she's having it too good I'll pluck her so it's it's a weird it's actually part of the drama in me I think I studied drama in college so I think it's more of a dramatic like you know I can see the headlines on the front of the echo like promising comedian cut down in her prime do you know it's more it's more that kind of stuff but when it comes to stand-up uh, every time I do a stand-up gig I spend the day leading up to it going why am I doing this I, I hate this I'm not good at this I hate this I'm on the toilet for the day very nervous Tommy I'm killing my husband I'm killing everybody around me then I go do the gig and I'm delighted and it's amazing and straight away afterwards you're like oh my god I'm so good at this. This is amazing and wonderful. And then the next gig, even if it was the next day, you're like, this is terrible. This is awful. Why do I do this to myself? I think that's what comedians do to themselves is we we traumatize ourselves for that little high. Then when you're on stage and straight away afterwards, the feeling of like, oh, my God, I'm unbelievable. <laughs> I think from the point of view, and I, I really do believe that one of the things we have to hold on to at the moment is the capacity to laugh and smile. And again, yeah. I I, I regular tune into your Instagram feed and shooing and all those characters <laughs> keep me very occupied. But I was trying to do this thing. I do this hundred days of walking thing oh, yeah. for Twitter. Um, and I decided to kind of do a hundred days of laughing kind of and walking. So I try to be witty and clever with these yeah. tweets every day and try and find something that made me smile or laugh in that time. But it's hard. I mean, uh, yeah. you're, it's getting six o'clock in the evening. Nothing funny has happened yet. And, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I like, put myself under phenomenal pressure. But um, yeah, but it, but it is important that we keep that part of our Irishness, I think, alive. Mm. Isn't it about the capacity to if you didn't laugh, you'd cry sort of thing? Yeah, I feel like humor is all I've got to give. Like, I don't have political views, particularly. I don't have medical views, particularly, except for being a hypochondriac and knowing a lot about very specific illnesses. But I uh, all I've got is laughter. That is all I've got. That's the only way I can help in this crisis. And it's not I don't I don't put out funny videos to entertain people on Instagram. I put them out to entertain myself or like my everyday stories are just my life. And if people are entertained by my life, then then all the better. But like it's all I've got. It is all I have got in my kit is how uh, to to laugh and how to be positive. I'm very careful of treading the line. I don't want to be toxically positive when, you know, we, I've had Zoom calls with my friends and they're upset. And I'm like, it'll all be fine. There'll be a vaccine. That's also unhelpful. Like we have to root ourselves in the now as well. Where the hell is the vaccine? Put it into me now. But like, I feel like uh, humor and uh, joy is all I can bring. And I do think as well, a lot of comedians have fallen into the trap of being a bit miserable in lockdown. And I'm like, that's not your job. That's not your job to be miserable. Let the other people be miserable. Our job is to try and spread a bit of happiness if we can at all. And I think that's brilliant. And, and, and the industry that you exist in has been mm -hmm. so badly affected by all of this. It, uh, it's, it's, it's especially grateful to for you to be able to keep the spirits up and just for one I want to thank you for for your videos over the last 11 months have certainly got a great laugh out of even oh, though many of them are at the expense of your children falling off chairs and bumping their heads and various oh my God. yes yes well the family is fully involved I often get a lot of messages about my husband people going poor Shane I'm like Shane is grand Shane knew well what he was getting into when he married me <laughs> well Shane uh, turned up this week with a, a series of Valentine cupcakes, which I think was uh, yes, he did. Now, stroke they, of genius. 
now they were requested is the only thing that kind of took some of the shine off of that because he was like what will I get you for Valentine's and I said well I love a delivery I love things being delivered to the house so he got the message loud and clear um, so I was I was happy to get the cupcakes anyway <laughs> so come here Laura tell us I am familiar who's at home with there's yes. Alfie and Polly but introduce us to your family so there is Shane, who's 42, my husband. Uh, there's uh, Polly, who is uh, nearly six, actually. She'll be six the end of March. She just started junior infants in September. And there is Alfie, who is three since November. So that's where a little foursome at the moment, uh, question mark over whether we might go for one more at some point. Um, all going to, according to plan, but four at the moment. The third one messes a lot of things up. I'll just give you a heads oh, you up. See, the old yeah. car has to get changed. Yeah, the holidays get changed. There's a, a, I'm not for any reason trying to turn you off. <laughs> well, you see, I was number you, three in my family and I'm like, oh my God, mom and dad here, had yeah. stopped at me or hadn't, if they'd stopped at my sister, they'd never have had me. So I'm like, oh my God, I better get, get a me quick. <laughs> It also means that you're outnumbered uh, three yes, to two. Yeah, yeah, um, true, true. Which, you know, when it comes to democracy in parenting, it sometimes leaves you <laughs> a bit out of sync with that. But um, no, so what is what has parenting in a pandemic been like for you? Um, it's obviously not without its challenges. I feel like I'm lucky that Polly had only just started school. Um, you know, I don't have a third or fourth class child dealing with fractions or common denominators or anything like that um it was blissful when she hadn't started school because there was no homeschooling we were just having the crack we were doing our play-doing and our coloring and a lot of telly and a lot of cozying in which is my favorite game to play which is basically just been under a duvet watching telly um but then when homeschooling came into the equation, I suppose that was the first time that I realized that that might not be super ideal for our relationship. Uh, me and Polly are extremely, extremely close, but she is like a mini version of me. So if you do come across any um, kind of, you know, need to fight or anything, it is like fighting a little small version of yourself, which is quite uh, intense. And so I realized that even though both my parents were primary school teachers, I am not a primary school teacher. And uh I realized that homeschooling could I could I could feel myself getting a bit frustrated and I'm like, why am I getting frustrated? And it wasn't that she was getting answers wrong or anything. I was like, people must know how brilliant you are. How will they ever know how brilliant you are if you don't show them your brilliance? And I I had to take myself aside and just say, she's five, Laura, like you weren't showing your brilliance at five. You were lucky, like, you know, you were sitting in class just the same as anyone else. Like, so just not saying that I'm brilliant, but you know what I mean? I'm like, I think she's amazing. Is she going out and show that to the world? But she's only five. So the homeschooling was the only kind of thing that came into play. And then loads of mammy guilt, just constantly guilty about everything. Every time I picked up my phone, every time I put on the kettle, I would have a lot of that anyway. I actively tried to not have it. But just everything like, you know, she asks you to play 100 times a day. You might say yes, 20 times. And you just feel horrendous about the other 80. But it's like, well, I have to make the dinner. Or I have to do the dishwasher. Or I have to do my work. So just negotiating those things. But I and I definitely as well, on many occasions, like closed the door of the utility room in with the washing machine, had a bit of a cry and came back out refreshed and reformed and ready again, just because I had to take myself away from from the normal stresses of the pandemic and just have a little moment to process it myself and then come back out. So lots of crying, crying on the floor of the utility room. <laughs> so dramatic. No, but I think that's uh, again, the drum, dramatic tendency that you described earlier on, I think that's very normative. I, I, yeah. I have to say the ebbs and flows of feeling hopeful and feeling despairing are part and parcel of mm. life in a pandemic, I think. And the idea that, uh, um, uh, again, the wanting your child to do well, everyone wants their child to do well. There's nobody in the world wants their child to do badly, you know, yeah. but um, the pressure, I think, from keeping up a curriculum and you, know, you not being the reason they fall behind or yeah. when they go back kind of going, what did they do when, yeah. to this child? When yeah, yeah, gone? yeah. Um, um, is pressure. And again, the, the it's not that we vicariously want to relive our childhoods through our own children, but the idea that there is an expectation that how this goes will reflect on me, you know, in yeah, terms of yeah. how good or bad I was at it and I think that shame and guilt and pressure is phenomenal for mm. parents and again 
like that, you know, the hundred requests to play, uh, you know, you're probably playing more with your child than you've ever played with them in your life. But the yeah. mere exposure to them being 24 seven, seven days a week um, means that like my worry is like, how are my children going to survive without 17 snacks a day when they go back to school? <laughs> so like a- many <laughs> snacks. Oh, my God. I'd say Tesco has no brioche left. <laughs> mad for the brioche. It's very French as well as everything else. Yeah. And and, and it's interesting because if this homeschooling hadn't been presented to me as a thing that I had to do, like I have a notion of if Polly turned around to me after secondary school and said, Mammy, I am going joining a commune. I'm going to walk barefoot in the fields um, I'm going to be wild and free. I would be totally fine with that. I mean, I did drama and theatre studies, which was essentially the same. So like, you know, walking barefoot around a lecture hall. So like I, I'm like, I don't care about what she does. But then when the homeschool. I think it gave me a sense of like, yeah, but is she, you know, she can do that once everybody knows how brilliant she is. And I think I probably suffer from a bit of, yes, everybody's child is brilliant, but mine is really <laughs> brilliant. Like, cause she's, a, she, I love her. She's amazing. She's very, uh, she's very outgoing and she's, you know, very wise for a child of five, but maybe, maybe me thinking she's a little cut above is a problem. <laughs> I don't think it is. I think everyone thinks their own child is. Okay. Like, I, I think from the point of the, the one thing that I would say after 25 years of doing this job, you know, if there is any sort of behavioral issue with a child in school, there's this hopeful remark from almost every parent that says, I think they're just a bit too bright. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're bored. They're I think bored. They're... <laughs> and, um, in all my experience, probably 2% of children are that child. Yes, yeah, yeah, true, true. <laughs> But, but in, in, in fairness, that's a, a very normal way of being a parent. You see your own child as special because they're special to you. Yeah. Um, and, and they are. But uh, again, the, it's about, you know, if you want your child to do well, there's no problem with that. Mm. If you need your child to do well, you're going to have yeah. an issue because it then goes down to pressure. But one of the things that we do on the podcast, we ask people about their own parenting experience or being parented and how that impacted on how you do it now. And I'm intriguedly interested in, because I read about you went to UCC to do drama, et cetera. Now, one of the times as a child and adolescent psychotherapist, one of the typical battles that you come across is the child who wants to do creative something. Okay. Albeit dance, theater, whatever. And the parents say, that's a hobby. You need to go and work in a bank or get a permanent and pensionable job. And so yeah. when it comes to the, the CAO filling out, there's a dichotomy of views around what is the best thing to do. And parents understandably are very concerned about the practical elements of life and are making a very adult decision. Um, the other person's the child or your teenagers mm-hmm. trying to follow their dreams and do what they want you. And I always find I'm caught in that when it's you know because I can see both points of view of in this issue yeah. um but you can rewind back to the start and walk us through it but I'd be really interested in that discussion or that okay. discourse around that so so what was parenting what was growing up like for Laura is growing, O'Mahony your married name or no your... yes it's my married name so Laura Daly was my um my maiden name so maiden god that's pretty dated isn't it <laughs> um my parents Cora and Jimmy Daly uh were uh, just amazing parents and continue to be like just a wonderful support. I mean, I know it's quite cliche to say like, but my mom is genuinely, certainly in our adulthood, she's one of my best friends, if not my best friend. And she wasn't when we were growing up. We didn't fight, but she knew like, it's not my job to be her friend here now. It's my job to be her parent. They were both primary school teachers, which is amazing in a way. So there was, so my mom and dad, there was myself, my uh, older brother and my sister then in the middle, my sister Yvonne. And so the, um, we they were both primary school teachers and my dad actually taught my brother but they had this pact that whatever happened in school didn't come home which I thought was kind of amazing and they used to help us you know they used to sit down at the table and help us with our homework you know they didn't have the Fallon spelling book out going come on now you have to get it right they really were they let us educate ourselves and didn't let the fact that they were primary school teachers impact us at all actually were they your primary school teachers uh, my dad was the vice principal of my primary school yeah he was. Wow. It was a massive, massive primary school, but he was the vice principal. Uh, he ultimately was the principal, but I was gone then and my mom was in a different school. Um, so we and actually my husband, both of his parents were teachers as well, but they were in a four teacher school and the principal and vice principal were his mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Very full on. But so we had an amazing childhood. Like 
I don't think mom and dad had a load of money or anything, but we definitely felt like we were, you know, very well cared for. And um, like, I can't stress, it, it almost sounds a bit clinical, like, they were just amazing. Like, I love mom and dad. Dad has a very dramatic side to him, very similar to me. But actually, so does my mom, um, except hers is more performative, I think, in a way, whereas dad's is like dad has an inherent like dramatic nature in his soul. Very emotional man, really, really in touch with his emotion. He'd cry at the wall now. Or sometimes dad will send me a text message and he'll be like, listen to this beautiful text message that I sent Laura. And he'll read it out and he'll start crying at his own words. Right. <laughs> Quite enjoy about him. <laughs> So he's like, this is stunning what I wrote here. Um, but then in second class in primary school, I had a teacher, Miss Horgan, and she did everything through drama. We did a uh, long division through drama. She used to literally have us pick up the one and carry it. Right. So we'd be picking up each other and carrying it and all this, which was amazing. So everything was through drama. And I think that was for me. I, I can it was a moment for me I was like oh my god what is this world this is there's there's acting this acting concept and we, like I remember we did a, a Cinderella and Irish Lou Harine a little play and I was like oh my god this is unbelievable and I think from that point on I started saying I wanted to be an actor when I grew up I think people probably thought I'd get over it like while accepting that I was you know good at it and everything I think they probably thought she's not going to stick with this like so then I went on into secondary school and it was still a thing there was a drama club a wonderful teacher Bernie Nigunik who was there like it was still there and he wasn't shifting for me at all it was getting stronger and then I joined like a stage this phase is becoming a problem this is a long phase (laughs) I joined a stage school then when I was 15 and that was like sure that was game set and match then because I was like oh my god this is a school where you can do acting and it's amazing so then as the CEO approached it was clear like drama and theatre studies was only in UCC I'd say about three years when I when I was uh, doing my CAO, it was only a relatively new course and I had mentioned it to my parents for years and they were like yeah fine the only time was my dad said would you not do law Laura because it's very like acting and I was like but dad that's real people's lives you know <laughs> like I, if I'm standing up in front of a court that's not acting I have to save this man or this woman or whatever so I'd say my mom probably said to dad, oh, she did. She said to him, Jimmy, it's your fault that she wants to do this. So you're, we're accepting it. Um, so driving theatre studies, it was. And um, they were like, they came to every play. Oh, my God, we did some appalling plays. We did a terrible play called The Public, where at least three of the cast were fully naked. And I told my mom, I was like, look, just just stand over in the corner. And it was one of these ones where you walked around the space. I was like, just stand in the corner, you know, and stay away or whatever. I looked up in the middle of the play. Mom is just standing where the fella is about to start writhing on a plinth in his nudes. And I was like, oh, God, oh, my God. So they went because drama and theatre studies is very it's the real, you know, it's the real height of like artiness. It's not like we're not doing Joseph. Do you know, it was really full on. And they went to all of them and they told me I was wonderful in every single one of them. They told dirty lies to me because sure, in that play, I didn't even know what was happening. I was playing the lead role and I was like, I'm a clue what's going on. But they came to everything. And like throughout our lives, my dad came to every single debating competition we were in. He used to sit down the back of the hall with his eyes closed because he couldn't look at us. He was so nervous. All the fish matches, everything. They were there for all of them. And like they've they've sat through some amount of muck uh, to get to this point where things are actually good. But they were so supportive. They couldn't have been more supportive. And I think that is a way to be with a child who has an artistic uh, don't don't stamp it out. Like if somebody mm. had tried to stamp it out, that would cause so much hassle. Between, like I had to do drama and theatre studies, even though I actually think I probably didn't need to do it for what I'm doing now. It it would have been so wrong for me to not do it. And I think mom and dad spotted that. And can I I'll go to get to that in a second? I want to ask you, growing up where your dad is the vice principal in your school. Yeah. From a peer point of view, how was that? Where Did it create grief or... Did you feel embarrassed or proud or? Oh, I felt very proud. It didn't create grief because he's a lovely man. Like he wasn't a dose. Everybody was very, very fond of him. They used to call him the smiling killer that he'd smile away at you, but he'd kill you. Um, And I was very, as well, I think, because it was a massive school, like there was nearly a thousand pupils in it. Um, I remember our junior infant teacher looking around at us and going, oh Christ, you're everywhere. (laughs) There was 44 of us in junior infants. And so because it was so big, you know, it wasn't an issue at all, really, because I didn't encounter him that much in the day. Now, anytime I was ever bold and got put out by the wall, he'd always appear. And I'd be like, who's <laughs> after telling him now in the staff room? But no, it, I was really proud um, because like even still on Instagram, people get on to me saying, oh, your dad was my teacher. He was amazing. Like uh, 
and uh, he really was very well loved because he was extremely fair and he wasn't egotistical or anything and he was funny like he used to go around you know pretend to take his finger off to the junior infants and do, do that little trick and he used to go around testing their popcorn and stuff and be like oh give me a taste of that now to see if it's all right he was a very um hands-on they knew him very well and loved him so I was delighted and I used it oh I absolutely used it I was like you can't send them to me my dad's the vice principal get away from me you can't bully me my dad will kill you <laughs> And then when you were in the getting involved in the dramatic and creative sides of things, um, that wasn't something that you got from home. That was something you got from that teacher who was kind of encouraging you to do it. But um, were you the only one that was into that side of stuff? Um, I think back like as in it was from home in a way because mom and dad are you know they would be artistic in like they'd have had an interest in it dad says he would have liked to have been an actor it just wasn't the done thing and there are people in our family like there's a storyteller a cousin of mine down he's a Shanaki down in Kerry and um, you know there are people I only realized I very self-centeredly didn't realize they exist I was like I'm the first person that ever thought of doing drama but afterwards dad was like was actually in our family a lot Um. So no, and it, but in a way, I came to it quite late because I, th- I think I wasn't great at it in primary school, even though I loved it. Um, and it wasn't until I was kind of 15, 16 and actually got into that stage school that I was like able to figure out that I was actually quite good at it as well as everything else. Because um, I think I was weirdly shy, even though I was very outgoing, I was weirdly shy about being on stage when I was younger. And it took me until I was a bit older to actually be like, to kind of take my place and just own it kind of. That's brilliant because that's something that's come up more so in when we discuss children's sport, but they kind of, you know, when people decide at eight or nine, whether you're good at something and you go Mm. into the elite level or you go into the thing, uh, my constant issue is that people are late bloomers and people can, you know, find their feet at 15, 16, whatever it might be. And I think sometimes we can scrutinize children's abilities far too young and decide whether they're good or not and put them on a track where they probably will be getting lots of support or very little and that's interesting that even from a drama point of view it might be something that you obviously mature into or find your feet you do like for example the first time I did the fish which is like you go out on stage and you recite a poem like and in this particular fish the best 10 got called back I didn't even get a call back I was absolutely stunned but it was because I was terrible I just wandered out it was a bit, some poem about an icicle I just wandered out and delivered it with nothing no no feeling or anything behind it because I think you know I was overwhelmed there was a stage there was queuing up backstage with other people that were in competition with you I didn't know any of that so the only way to get good at like then subsequently years later myself and a girl in drama and theatre studies we used to go back and do the fesh every second year just to just to win it like we <laughs> we were in our 20s still doing the fesh and we used to take it in turns to win the trophy I'm like do you want to win this year or will I terrible <laughs> but like it it, 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 do, it takes ages I suppose to build the confidence and to also be um to to, for it to turn then into a job as well that obviously takes a while to realize this is something that you're you're so good at that you could actually continue with it and then in college I realized that I actually wasn't good at the kind of serious straight acting that there's thousands of people better at me than that that I hated lots of the elements of drama and theater studies to be honest and uh, th- that was another big realization and, and mom and dad had to be there then as well to kind of I suppose deal with the fact that I didn't enjoy my college degree at all and it, it, that was heartbreaking because it was like, this is drama. This is the thing I should love. But this is drama as I don't I don't know it. I don't know these, you know, like I, I was used to being like the star, we'll say. And then you walk into drama and theater studies and it's 30 people walking around the space, breathing the color yellow out onto a wall. Like ridiculous, ridiculous. I'm like, I'm from state. I'm a Billy Barry. What am I doing? Do you know what I mean? And in terms of then going through from college to becoming a parent and finding yourself homeschooling in January 2021 and your parents kind of belief in you and their support of you and the the, I I love the idea of your parents going to all the plays and was that that wasn't experienced by you as pressure that was just support Oh, um, just support. And I've we say in cahoots all the time, Laura is an angel and a princess, because that's what my mom and dad told me I was like. I was an angel. Now they'd give out to me. But overall, the bottom line was Laura's an angel and a princess. And somewhere that's stored in my head that no matter what my mom and dad think the world of me. Right. And think I'm capable of anything, even if I'm not capable of anything. 
they they just ha- never pressured, never at all, like in my leaving search or anything, no pressure. They just knew that all that their job was was to be a support for whatever for whatever I came up against, we'll say. It's amazing because that that's really that approach is really coming true from um loads of people that I'm, we're talking to over the podcast. I, I, I spoke to Dervil O'Rourke a few weeks back and she spoke about her parents, you know, they supported her to do all the sporty stuff, but mm-hmm. um, never pressure. You know, it was yeah. always kind of, you know, and they were very realistic and saying Look, very few people make a career out of this, but, you know, we'll take you to anywhere you need to be and go and do and made sacrifices around that. But it was never, you know, they, they, she talked about, you know, other parents who were kind of coming over to her parents saying, what are you feeding her? We need to feed our child that it got really, yeah. it was the, the parents get so invested in the performance that they almost, you know, uh, contaminated that experience a little bit. And, and I'd see that quite a lot in the, in the work that I do, but they, the ability to support from mm-hmm. a kind of a, a non-pressured position, I think yeah. it's a huge skill in being able to do. And even like I used to go to an Irish college in the summer when I was from about 15 on after the junior start down to East Cork to stay in an Irish college for three weeks. Right. We were all kissing fellas on the beach and this, that and the other. And mom and dad to even allow that and to support that. And dad used to collect me after the three weeks and I bawling in the car and he used to just let it happen. He'd wait until we got maybe about half an hour up the road and then he'd be like, are you all right now? And I'd be like, yeah, ready to continue. But like they knew that I was down there kissing fellas and talking Irish and having a ball and as an older person drinking on the beach and all of this. And like, as it's obviously as a helper, not as a student, but like as in to allow all of that, I find as a mother of two toddlers, I'm like, I don't know how I will get to that point of being OK with my little girl going off to Irish college. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, that's real and even as we got older and met our life partners, you know, they upgraded all their thoughts, like originally the notion of like sex before marriage or anything like that, you know, was not OK. And then they upgraded as we hit each stage. They suddenly became these wonderfully uh, open, willing to adjust people just to help us through every phase that we hit, which is amazing. I can't see I can't even see how they let me out in a car to drive. I do, at this point, as a mother of two toddlers, I'm like, how, my children are never going to drive. They're going to live with me. There'll be no Irish college, no kissing boys. And I'm just they're going to stay with me. I don't know how you get there, but obviously you do. And I think that's hugely interesting because I think the notions of parental control are vastly different now than they were. I oftentimes make the comparison that when I was in sixth class in primary school, I used to hitch home. You know, that was, if I saw my 12 year old doing that. Oh my God, it gets sick, I'd get him. (laughs) You know, but the idea that the the world was a different place, but Mm. our, our parental influence control was also very much I think more passive in the sense of it was much more an organic process than perhaps something that we feel very coached in how to do and I think the organicness of our own intuition is really important to pay attention to but also not to overly pay attention to our need for control do you know what I mean from the point of view of knowing you know where our children are all the time and what they're doing that's makes us feel better but does it make them develop better that makes sense yeah and like now interestingly there was another strand with my dad there was always the threat that dad could appear anywhere like I was on my first ever date and I saw dad driving past and I ducked down an alley and when dad collected me later on he was like isn't it funny the way you'd be ducking down alleys on your first date so like he was always around and he used to collect us from Red's nightclub in Cork at 2 a.m dad be sitting outside I don't think that was a control thing for him I Mm. think that was and like if I had come out to dad with a couple of drinks in me I don't think dad would have said anything about it um like I don't think he'd have been thrilled about it but uh, I'm not sure like dad understood the need to be uh, you know an early teen or whatever like I I stay I lived at home for college so that was a big thing as well like I was at home until I was about 22 or whatever but so they, they, it, it never felt like control but definitely a dad was happy to be doing the collecting I think to know that he was the one that was going to be there at the end of the day and mom was happy for that to happen as well and then Laura as you become a parent mm. how does the world change for you oh it changes a lot obviously like when Polly was born, I uh, she I was in love, obviously, straight away. Um, I breastfed her, which I found to be the most horrifically awful thing that I ever did. Um, I know that's not very popular to say that, but I think we all need to be honest with each other. Uh, I found it hell on earth because it made me feel like 
the book stops with you now, lady. Your life is over now, Missy. All you do is feed this child. And I really struggled with all of that guilt surrounding whether to keep going or stopping, even though I was hating it, wasn't doing anything for my bond. We were already bonded, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff you get bogged down in as a first time mom. And I uh, like I, I just... I I think it sharpens the mind as well in light of my job in particular. Like I realized I don't have time to be arson about in a rehearsal room now for some stupid play that isn't worthwhile. So it made me make better choices. It also made me a much harder person to direct because I remember I did a play shortly after having Polly. And they were like, "Okay, guys, for the first week, we're just going to we're just going to walk the space and we're going to pretend like uh, we're going to approach the play as if we're horses or something. And I was just like, absolutely not. No way. I'm like, if I'm coming in here for a week to rehearse away from my baby, we're rehearsing the script. And so I became a much more inflexible person (laughs) in many ways, but also. Uh, it sharpened like you pick the things that are worthwhile then because if I'm going to be away from my children it would want to be for a good reason and I you know the the fannying years are over now it's time to it, it you know it, as in it's time to realize what your priorities are or whatever but then when I had Alfie I didn't breastfeed him and that was uh, that was great for me because I was so happy and he was so happy and I didn't feel like the book stopped with me and and Shane could be more involved and and I could have time to play with Polly it would have been almost impossible to breastfeed Alfie because Polly was all up in our business so she'd have been like she'd practically be you know she would, would have been too involved anyway but that was when I look back at those early days the one thing that I found the hardest was that notion of being so attached now that your own life uh, is is vastly changed and obviously that calms down a good bit as they get older and they become more independent and even I've noticed in lockdown they're starting to play with each other a bit and I'm kind of like oh oh will I can I play as well you know I'm suddenly like a bit needy uh, even though this is the phase I have wanted so it's totally overwhelming and like the just the constant uh just the constant juggling of like a job comes in can I do it can I not you know just just unnecessary guilt and stuff but mainly like I just love them an awful lot I think they're great people and I'm so glad that the world has them because I think they will do good in the world and but it is overwhelming it is and I was the first of my friendship group as well to have kids my friends didn't start having kids for about another five or six years and I was living in Ballycotton quite isolated quite lonely in a way and it was hard it was hard like I'm sending pictures of the kids and I'm like do my friends even care do you know what I mean so then I'm like will I not bother sending pictures and then I feel bad for not sending the pictures do you know but I think your point about you become so much more economic with your time Mm -hmm. and your decisions that's such a really good point because I think and I do believe there's a strong difference between getting married and having a child I think the level of sacrifice that happens with the latter is quite a bit you know in terms of your own life of course um, yeah there is you know the as you say the faffing around or the the kind of unnecessary or the you know it becomes a, an issue of prioritizing mm-hmm. and and I, I can't really you know as you say walk around a room for a week <laughs> breathing <laughs> yellow onto the wall <laughs> until um, <laughs> because th- this is coming at a great cost to me to be here you know yeah. but again I think the the expectation of parenting from the imaginary brochure is so not like what it's like. Yeah. Of course, there is the joy and the wonderfulness of it. But there are also, like you described in the breastfeeding experience, that feeling of failure or the feeling that you're not doing yeah. it right. Yeah. And, and I can remember our, our, our first lad had colic and I can yeah. remember driving up and down the nace road at five in the morning thinking, how am I so bad at this? Do you know what yeah. I mean? And it does come at a, a kind of a cost to ourselves, but you're so lucky to have them is the kind of thing that you're told all the time. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's an ambivalent experience. Parenting is ambivalent. It's joy and pain and, you know, it's frustration and it's jubilation yeah. all at once. And that, that's what makes it so complex. But in terms of the thing I would always say is there's no one way to parent because mm every child is different. And so therefore your approach to them is going to be different. As you have, remind me, six and four-year-old, am I right? Nearly six and three, yeah. Nearly six and three. So over the last years, you've gone from one to two and you've gone from pre-verbal to verbal. You've gone from not mobile to mobile. What are the parenting stuff that comes up for you that you would 
worry about, think about, wonder about, question about? Is it the stuff now or is it stuff in the future or um, what would your questions be? I think I'm very preoccupied with with the future to a point. I always said that I didn't feel like I needed a book about parenting until Polly hit three and then she went into tantrums and I was suddenly like, oh, I do not have the skills to deal with this. And I had tried everything. I had tried screeching. I had tried hugging. I had tried silence. I had tried every single thing. And I was just like, she's going to beat me. This child is going to defeat me with these tantrums. And so that was the first that was the because. I know I'm a good mom and I know I'm a fun mom and I know that they, they have a ball, we'll say, for the most part. I know I can also be strict and I know I can also be a pain in the arse. But my concerns are, are less about now and are more about the future. And one of my biggest ones churned up when Polly went to school. I was like, how do I protect her from other people? Because my whole life, my father refers to them as hangers on. I have had people latch on to me that seem perfectly lovely and then they destroy me because they're a dose and I end up upset or I end up feeling like I've lost a friend or I end up feeling like I've insulted them or something like that and I can see in Polly like at the moment she has a group of friends and there's three of them and I had a three and three is awful because two are like we used pick we used to be like today now we're going to be odd with her and the two of us will be against the one and then it could swap the next day so three kills me and I can see like Polly loves friends and she wants to be popular and fun and I can see you know she gets very kind of cute in front of people and all this and I'm like just be yourself be your edgy self don't let anyone take your shine I'm just so afraid of dopes uh, that will upset her and I don't want her to be upset and I know I can't prevent it but if there was a method that you could suggest I would take it I love this question because it's a <laughs> it's a very honest question but it's it's one of those things that as a parent we can't influence in terms of directly I mean and the more we try to influence that I think the more it backfires. You know, if you say you can't hang around with Laura Namani now, she's bad news. Well, Laura Mahoney all of a sudden becomes the most interesting, enigmatic person <laughs> yeah, that I yeah. need to hang around. So it, it, it is about the work you do with the child themselves. Okay. Right? So, so you can't control what happens to them. You can only control or help or enhance or support their reactions to it. And okay. your child will undoubtedly and inevitably meet disappointment, betrayal, vulnerability, mm-hmm. upset, failure. I mean, oh, <laughs> Laura's great. welling up here as I talk. No, um, and so that as part of her preparing her for living, you have to say, well, what would be the best way that I can prepare her for these inevitabilities? And I want her to have the savviness to be able to spot the, the, the hangers on, as your mm-hmm. father would say, or spot the people who are being bossy or you know I want her to be herself and you know in a room full of princesses her if she wants to be Batman I want her to be Batman and that but at the end of the day children want to be cool children they don't want to be cool adults okay so she wants to be whatever everyone else is being and so some degree of performance in order to feel connected to in order to feel belonging in order to feel part of that is going to be necessary she's going to have to be a little bit disingenuous in order to get by that we all have to be. So it's teaching her to be savvy around that, but also minding herself. Mm-hmm. And I would say, and I think your own parenting experience, it amplifies when you're, to, when you're talking about your parents, I just thought your parents focus through all of your life was self-worth, mm-hmm. self-belief, yeah. self-value, right? They were the three things that they were saying to you. And they were saying, you know, Maybe law would be a better option. But if you want to choose this, we're going to believe you and back you on it. You know, we are primary school teachers, but we believe that you'll be able to self-direct. You know, we will allow you to pick your lane. We will allow you to do that. And that kind of, again, support from a distance is it that has the impact on you feeling yeah. able to make the decision rather than being told to make them all the time. So if, if you see your child doing a Lego thing and you go in and go, oh, that's lovely, but you should have done it this way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And do it. The child goes, well, that wasn't the way I wanted to do it. You know what I mean? Whereas it's kind of saying, that's brilliant. What were you trying to go for there? And even if you don't know what this drawing is or looks like or whatever the case would be, the temptation is to go, would you not just make the eyes a little bit more clear or whatever? It's not the same as teaching every child that they're special. 
mm-hmm. because I don't think that is helpful. That it, it develops a naivety and even makes them more open to vulnerability. They need to know that there are people to be cautious of in the world without yeah. terrifying them. But what makes you able to protect yourself in relationships is the relationship you have with yourself. Mm-hmm. So all of the work is about making her available to, to notice and recognize her internal variables, her kindness, her generosity, her loyalty, her strength, her bravery. And where we make the mistake is we create a system of you're a great drawer, you're a great hurler, you're a great runner, you're a great this. And all the external variable becomes the token of Mm -hmm. work. And it is really, really important that we focus on the internal because when the external is, is, is valued, then we see more performance. We see, and I, I, I tell you, Lord, the, the amount of children and teenagers that I've seen in the last 10 years who c- kind of turn around at 16 years of age and go, I spent my whole life being who other people wanted me to be, and I never got to be myself. And so the idea that, you know, that in order to, and I think there's a difference between fitting in and belonging. You know, if you fit in, you're compromising your own ability to, fit a normative and conform to it whereas belonging is where you actually feel that the people there are your tribe and they get you for who you are do you know what I mean and yeah, yeah. and again where we overemphasize the importance of fitting in and underemphasize the ability to belong then children will gravitate towards fitting in the worry I would have is that I think the the system of the normative is way narrower now than it was when I was growing up in terms of you know there was the rocker group and then there was the arty yes, group, yeah, and then yeah. was this group. There's kind of one look now that many people either come for, you're either in or you're out. And we've become quite polarized that, you know, you're either left or you're right or you're in, you know, pick yeah. a lane really early, which makes us kind of adopt a fitting in rather than a belonging piece. But one of the things I'd say, for example, for yourself, that finding drama yeah. was your tribe mm-hmm. you know finding that teacher and, who and actually looked irish at the world college, a different way irish mm. college I, I i remember being like i belong here they, mm. more so in irish college in drama like i belonged there because i was the star and i didn't give a hoot about anybody else didn't even know the names of anyone in my class i'm like stand aside i'm doing this but in 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 irish college it was like oh my god these are a bunch of people who like the same things that i like but also like different things because i wasn't sporty or anything but there's a fellow with a guitar just singing songs that i know and and that was that was like a moment of of kind of color in my teenage years And the fact that I kept going back there, like I didn't do a J1 or anything. I always went to Irish college. I was down in Irish college the night of my leaving cert results. And like all of those, that tribe made me feel like that the others didn't matter because like I don't have any friends from primary school and I don't have any friends from secondary school. And that is fine with me because I have loads from Irish college and I have loads for like I have some from college as well. But like the most important, like Shane is from Irish college, my husband, I met my people in Nakajun and like I remember feeling like it doesn't you know it doesn't matter where else I go here now because I have this and that kind of kept me safe and also my parents I worked in a bookshop all the summers uh, in between school and I think that gave me a, a sight that school wasn't the be all and end all that there is a life out there and I do think teenagers can get very bogged down in the school being so important in terms of friendships and everything. But I'm like, I think even doing that job during the summer uh, made me realize, oh, there's life after school. And, you know, if I'm not getting on with people in my class, it doesn't matter because I get on with this group or something. And it's you're absolutely right. And I, th- I think one of the things that we're probably making mistakes at the moment is that we're valuing intelligence. Of course, we do that all the time, but we're also valuing emotional expression. But we're not valuing emotional intelligence. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. you say, oh, you need to say how you feel and you need to be able to cry and you need to be able to speak out. But you also need to be able to understand how you feel and, you know, understand how to read a room and understand mm-hmm. how to negotiate the world because it won't always be the way you want it to be. And that that ability to to read someone else, to be able to see it, that happens in life. It doesn't happen in a therapy room and it certainly doesn't yeah. happen in a classroom or out of a book. You have to live it. And those experiences of things like Irish College, all those wonderful, whether it's growing up in scouts or sport or yeah. drama or whatever it is, they, those are so important in building our 
lens with which we see the world, but also mm-hmm. the lens with which we see ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, one thing I would say to your little girl is that a method that, that has always stood strong for me is if people, if you're in a relationship or a friendship or something, it has to add more to your life than it takes away over a period of time, right? So you and I might be pals and everything else, but if you're just draining off me all the time and I'm not getting anything back, well, that that's not a relationship in the mm-hmm. sense of that, Obviously, I'll go through bad times and you may need to be there for me. And likewise, I'll return the favor for you. But that it is a a friendship is a fluid dynamic. It's not you have to make me happy all the time. And as soon as you don't, we're not friends. But that comes later. Childhood is so black and white. You know, you're my best friend. You can only be friends with me. And, you know, this is our rules. And, you know, and especially especially girls. But but that's the playground politic. You know, um, it is territorial and it is your mind. And I find as a parent, when I hear these stories about whoever said you're not allowed to talk to him, I have to stop myself from like into the yard the next day and be like, where is he? Where is he? Come over to me. Like, I am so rowdy. I'm like Mufasa. I always describe myself as Mufasa from the Lion King, where I'm like, I kill you, I kill you. And it's the same. Like, I feel like we're, I'm forgetting Alfie here, but Alfie's only three. He's starting play school in September. But equally, like... I want him to be kind. I want him to be a good man. I want him to be, you know, somebody who's an who's an ally and and somebody that is, you know, girls are safe with him and all of those things. But at the moment, he hasn't like Alfie doesn't know what's going on. He's had no friends for three years. Do you know what I mean? Like Alfie is a simple soul at the moment, whereas I see in Paul, I can see like. She's, you know, she's meeting people. She's deciding who's nice. And I know myself as an adult that I still don't have that instinct to fully self-protect. Like if, you know, if you meet somebody who you're like, this person now could be an absolute drain. I still give them all of me. I give them everything. I tell them all my secrets and then they drain the life out of me. And so I, I am only learning that as a 35 year old. And I'm like, oh my God, I'd want to learn it quick now because I'm going to have to pass this skill on. (laughs) Again, there's the laboratory of life is what yeah. will teach us better than anything. But I, I, I don't I, I don't think we should ever underestimate a family mantra or a culture or, you know, with all the influences of technology and friendships and everything else. The, the culture and value system from home mm. still is far more eff- influential in how we become who we are than anything else. And yeah, so okay. uh, don't underestimate the impact of the jewels of knowledge that you're handing down but also don't be very careful that sometimes the anxiety or worry or control or neuroticism is also passed (laughs) down as well and so you have to try and manage that too so so yeah I think working on her own relationship with herself is key and if she sees the value in herself in the right way she will find it and look for it in others in the Mm. same way but there will be points where she will become a little bit disingenuous or she'll become a little bit you know, performative or whatever it might be. And she needs to. So, OK, 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 that's, know, that's good to know. That's yeah. part of survival, part of survival. Anything else, Laura, or any other? My other, I have, you, have, as I have you there, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you shouldn't have sent that email address in the message because you're going to be, uh, when she's 16, I'm going to be like, hi, go on, just a quick question for you. Um, their own relationship, like without getting into it, my own brother is estranged from all of the family by his own choice and good luck to him. But, uh, sounds a bit harsh, but I mean it. So, I suppose that happened around the time that Alfie was born. So I have a heightened sense of Alfie and Polly need to be best friends forever. You need to be always on each other's side. You need to have blind loyalty to each other. You know, I have that sense that I want their their bond to be really strong, even if it's at my expense, you know, even if they're off in the corner bitching about mom being a dose or mom's on the telly again. She thinks she's so cool. You know, even if it's that. But I suppose how do I how do I nurture their bond? Like when Alfie was born first, Polly hit Shane across the head. <laughs> Never Alfie. But when we brought him home from hospital, she literally just clattered Shane as if like, what have you done? And while we worked so hard on their bond, like she did every nappy with me. We had nappy team. We had bottle team. I said the word team, I'd say a million times in the first couple of weeks when Alfie was born. And now they have a lovely friendship and a lovely bond. But I am aware that the world can damage that because of our own situation. And so, I, I, again, I'm like, how do I make them stay friends forever? 
Okay. Uh, the short answer to that is you don't. I know. Uh, right? I hate that answer. The issue is that sibling rivalry or tension or is is again a fluid issue. So the ideal that you want is that they will that they kill each other and kill for each other. Okay. So you know, so you want to have that. You know, I can mess up my sister, but nobody else can. Do you know what I mean? So there's a kind of and and there's a degree of these are two people who are vying for the attention of you and Shane and it's yeah. an attention economy so the idea around fairness and equality and who's getting the same amount becomes much more of a, an issue so the the way in which we get attention is oftentimes through misbehavior so we're far more likely to go into the room when they're screaming and fighting than we are when they're not mm. I would always say when they are quiet when they're getting on when they are bonding if you want to use that word reward it okay. comment on it catch it catch them being good and say loving this lads loving the way you two are getting on here not so much when they're getting on say right i'll empty the dishwasher or i'll uh, get this yeah. done or whatever because it is about visibility but accepting the fact that there's three years between them is there so um yeah two when... years seven months yeah okay so let's imagine that Polly is 13 and Alfie's 10 and a half or whatever it might be. She's not going to want him up in the room with her pals no, when no. they're here or when they're visiting. And he's going to be coming down to you going, she's leaving me out. And she's not. <laughs> and you have to kind of go, that's where she's at. Okay. She needs that. She needs that time. And she needs to be annoyed by you because if it's not normal for a 13 year old to not be annoyed by her 10 year old brother, who's hanging out of her and you know, that sort of stuff. The other issue will be that she will always see him as 12. <laughs> so yes, I have two yes. older sisters and I love them to bits, but they still think I'm nine. Yes, you know what I mean? yes, how they speak true. about me, you know? <laughs> and I was like, I have a doctor PhD and they're going, <laughs> Yeah, you're still <laughs> bring the parchment with you every time you go over to their house. Like, oh, yes. But it, the issue is that the 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 way in which the association between brothers and, and siblings is not they don't see us as Laura Mahoney, the comedian. We don't mm. see us as they they see us as you're my little brother and you're my little sister and you're pain sometimes, but I wouldn't let anything happen to you. And mm. that's as good as you can hope for, you know. And again, if they become friends later in life you have to understand the developmental trajectory 13 year old versus 10 year old or 29 year old and 26 year old yeah the 29 year old 26 year old will get they go for pints together they'll get yeah. on well, that, that'll all happen but the developmental trajectory at the moment is so much more steep that to expect them to be able to share interests at, that are exactly the same and be um, you know altruistically thoughtful about their sibling I think you're going to build yourself up for I'm disappointment. I'm asking too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it I is. know. And, and some of the, the siblings' rivalry stuff is completely normative. You know, mm -hmm. they want, they have to have a voice. And the only place they're going to be able to use the voice is at home. And they need to be able to get angry and upset and have tantrums and get rowy and, and tell you what they need or what they're annoyed about or what they're frustrated about. And nine times out of 10, that's going to be their sibling. You know, she's yeah. done this to me. He's done that to me. And when you hear them using their voice, I would say to you, Laura, be grateful for it. Because yeah. the child who doesn't use their voice, the child who won't speak, who doesn't use language, who seems to be getting on with everything and just accepting of everything. And that's that kid who says, I'm 16. I was spent my whole life being someone else and I never forgot to be myself. So the... The, the color of the argument is an announcement of identity. And that's good. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a really good thing. You know? I think I have to be fair to them both. And I think maybe I'm guilty of not because my husband said this to me the other night and I actually nearly went for him. He said that he thinks that Polly can do no wrong in his eyes and Alfie can do no wrong in my eyes. And it actually cut me to the core because I'm like, oh my God, I'm after turning into an Irish mammy who's like, my boy, my boy. And so I realize that... I sometimes excuse Alfie because he's a baby and he's younger and and it might not seem fair to Polly because whatever he has done is outrageous. But I'm like, oh, he's a baby. He doesn't understand. But she's there going, but it's not fair. So I feel like already I need to be more aware, as you say, that the, the two of them are at a different stage and that their understanding of it is through a different prism. 
And I think that's there's something very Irish about that. I mean, I'm the youngest. I'm the only boy. And I was, you know, when my sisters were going out in late teens and drinking, there was all these kind of, you know, don't go get drunk and all this stuff. Whereas when I came home, there was like a basin and a glass of water <laughs> left out for me. <laughs> sort of thing. So and they were like, that's not fair. Like we got F for it and he's got a free ride. You know, I'm the same person who who couldn't peel a potato when they were 19 years of age yeah, yeah. because my mother used to do it for me. Um, so from the point of view of that kind of some of that nurturing, spoiling kind of sons and their mom stuff is just because it's a stereotype doesn't mean it's not true. It actually yeah. does happen. Um, but it's not about being uh, equal. And that, that's, you know, it's a favoritism issue is that children impose that on adults and say, you know, she got more than me. I knew the issue is it, it's about when you need it, it will be there. So when Polly's doing her leaving search and Alfie's in TY, mm. she's going to get away with not doing the bins and she's going to be supported and we're all going to walk around in eggshells and let her do her thing and she'll get away with being a bit more cranky than everything else. But he just needs to know that when my turn comes, yeah, I'll get the same. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it doesn't have to be the same all the time, but I know that if I need it, mom and dad will recognize that I need it and they'll provide it. Um, okay. And so it's not getting a, the, the, the kind of, you know, it's not fair is the default position for every child between the ages of four and 13. That's fine. Um, and you expect that. Uh, but the idea is, is again about knowing that if I need it, it'll be there. And that just gives me the reassurance that I don't have to demand it all the time because I, and again, I would go back to, your own relationship with with your mum and dad and, and the way you speak about your dad, you know that if you needed it, he would be there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That would never come into question. And so, um, so yeah, it's about convincing them of, and again, it comes back to those three things, self-value, self-belief, and self-worth. The, the, the big mistake people make, confidence and self-worth are very different things. Yeah. So confidence, you go up to the Everman Theatre and you give your show and you, you seem very confident doing it. But that's nothing to say that you don't walk off stage and go, I was rubbish or that was mm -hmm. useless or that didn't go well. And so the relationship with yourself is the only relationship that matters. It doesn't your truth is the only truth that matters. And once your children are not overly hypercritical of themselves, you know, they will absorb and negotiate and find the resilience to manage the inevitable criticism or disappointment or things yeah. that life will throw at them. But we can spend way too much time trying to snowplow the world so that it's safe for them and they never experience adversity. What we need to be doing is nurturing their ability to respond and react to adversity should it happen. And mm -hmm. the best way of doing that is by nurturing those three things, not building them up to be special. That's very different. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if it goes back to our thing about, you know, you, I really think my child is probably better than every other child. You know, 97% of us believe that we're better drivers than everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> so by virtue of the fact that's clearly impossible to be a statistic. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. it's just that there's a bit of that, but not everyone is special mm. because if everyone was special, then special would mean nothing. And so yeah. it is, you're special to me and you're special to us and you're special to your friends and your world. But but sometimes things might go wrong and you might need to have to manage mm. that. And that's OK, too. You know, it's whatever so it happens, you got your back. You know? It's funny because even as you're saying that, like, I'm definitely going to have to shake this element of my personality, because even as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, you can say that, but she is special, though. So you have a matter like she's actually, <laughs> she actually is in the three percent. So <laughs> I'll work on that. I'll work on that. Coleman. <laughs> As I say, uh, the parenting lighthouse, not the boat. Yeah, it's up to you to follow it or not. Yeah. Okay. But uh, look, uh, that that, uh, that has just flown, Laura. At that time, my God, it's been absolutely brilliant. I, I just wanted to thank you for your honesty and for your humor and everything else. And I was, I think you, this might be a good point to say for the last listeners' questions episode of the podcast. What we're going to do is going to ask parents to write in stories of parenting epic fails disasters <laughs> funny things that have happened okay. and we're going to dedicate the last episode of this series to kind of going through those things because it is it's so important for us to not forget to smile to not forget yeah. to laugh to not for, to forget to to remain focused on the important stuff and yeah. you know children will remember the fort that we built with the cushions and the couch way more than they'll remember the marquee with 170 people for your communion. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think yeah, from the point yeah. of 
maybe if the last year has taught us that it's more about the experiences rather than the things because the things haven't been there for us. But personally, I just want to thank you for giving us the experiences of those videos and laughs and chuckles and, you know, <laughs> talking about all kinds of your own <laughs> dramas and things that were happening to you because it really has helped me personally in the lockdown and I've, I've laughed along with you. And I wish you well in everything that you do. And when your industry is back up and running, I will be getting a ticket to the Everyman Theatre or wherever it is that you'll be talking oh, to because you are a super, super funny person. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Conrad. And it is my total pleasure to make people laugh. It is literally the only thing in the world that I that I want to do. So it's nice to hear uh, when it works. And thanks for talking to me. And I'm going to talk to you loads more in the future because <laughs> you've got to stay with me now until they're about 18. <laughs> Hugh Coleman changes his email. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find you. There's always a way. <laughs> Laura Mahoney, thank you ever so much thank for you. that. And if anyone has any questions, you can get them as usual into asking for a parent at gmail.com we'll get to them in the next listeners questions episode uh, but for now i just want to thank laura mahani for her time her honesty her insight and her humor and until next time take care stay safe and bye for now that was the wonderful laura mahani there and i really hope you enjoyed that as much as i did i can remember not feeling great before doing that episode, but just that chat with Laura just seemed to raise the spirits a little bit. And, you know, it's really important to be able to smile and laugh. And with that in mind, as I said, in the end of the episode, we are hoping to get you to email in your parenting trials and tribulations and anything with a bit of humor that in the last episode of the season, we might go through your stories and share a bit of our own uh, epic fails as parents, which are inevitable during these times. And... Um, and again, in context of the struggles that we're all having, I have to say one of the things that's kind of helped me over the last week, and I know I've gotten feedback from other people, is that four to seven principle. Remember we were saying that if you rate everything between one and ten, that the safest place to be is four to seven. And I know over the last week, whether it be irritability or movement or sleep or Netflix or COVID exposure to numbers and news cycles and doom scrolling. I found myself in the one, two, three and eight, nine, ten from time to time and really reminding myself of the need to come back to four to seven. Uh, it's not about not going into the one, two, threes and eight, nine, tens, but it is important that we find our way back. And I think that's really helped me and is continuing to help me over the last week or two. So if it's something that you found helpful, I think it's really important to use it. So remember, let's keep an eye on things and as we find ourselves going to the extremes of emotion, whether it be sadness, anxiety, hopelessness, etc. Let's try and find our way somewhere back to the middle because, you know, when in a polarized world, the truth is always somewhere in the middle. Anyway, listen, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Laura Mahoney as much as I did. And we look forward to chatting to you in your listeners questions episode next week. But uh, until then, Take care, stay safe, and bye for now.